Ecclesiastes 7, we turn, or maybe I should say return this morning to continue in this section of the book that began in chapter 6, verse 12, where the preacher asks, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. That uh, word good, you might remember if you were here last week, is the Hebrew word tov, and it serves the purpose of loosely unifying, like a thread throughout these verses, this section of Ecclesiastes appearing as it does again and again and again in verses 1 and 2 and 3 and 5 and 8 and 11 and 14. Oh, it's not always translated as good. Uh, sometimes it means better or even prosperity or joyful. We take this repetition as an indication that we have a unit here of sorts from 6 verse 10 through 7 verse 14. Starts, I say, with the question of verse 12, chapter 6, who knows what is good for man? And we started to explore the answer that Solomon gives to his own question in the first four verses of chapter 7 last time. There we learned last week that it is good for us to look death right in the face, squarely, head on, and often and seriously. But the day of, better the day of death than the day of birth, we've learned. Better the house of mourning than the house of feasting. In other words, as far as wisdom goes, the funeral is better than the festival. We learn the most important lessons of life, even if paradoxically, by reckoning very carefully with death. And then we learn that it's good to embrace sorrow. Sorrow is the school in which we learn the most about ourselves and much more importantly, the most about God and the heart of God. Rather than always and ever seeking to escape from the inevitable sorrows of life, it is better for us to embrace them in order to learn from them and to be shaped by them under the hand of God. It is those who mourn, Jesus says, remember, those who mourn who are blessed. Well, this morning we continue to hear Kohaleth's answer to his own question concerning what is good for us in this series of Proverbs from chapter 7, to which we'll turn again right after we pray. Father, we thank you for wisdom and while we've uh, been humbled enough to know that wisdom is not the end of all things and still falls short because we still cannot wrap our hands around that key to unlock the mystery of life in this world under the sun, yet we thank you for the gift of wisdom. It is better than folly, and so we pray that you will grant us wisdom. We look for it and we open our hearts to receive it. Send your spirit to grant it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pick up at the first verse of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, 
for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. In the day of prosperity, uh, consider the work, I'm sorry, <laughs> middle of 12. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What is good for us? Well, as I say, so far we've learned that it is good for us to reckon squarely and often with our mortality. And it is good for us to embrace suffering and sorrow and to mourn. Seems, doesn't it, that the harder things in life are the things that are good for us. The things that demand the most from you are the things that are the best for you, the better for us all. And that theme certainly continues now into verse 5 where we left off last time. Today... We learn that it is good for us to listen to the wise and to wait wisely. It's good for us to listen to the wise and we must wait wisely. First, listen to the wise. Verse 5, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. And another of those comparisons, those better thans that we've been accustomed now to hearing from the preacher, wisdom is found in choosing and preferring one thing over the other. In this case, choosing to hear the rebukes of wise people instead of fixing our ears on the songs of fools. Once again, the choice comes down to wisdom versus folly. And here we learn in sum, that wisdom's rebuke is better than folly's songs. Now, there's no shortage of foolish songs, is there? I mean, we could turn on the radio and listen to one shallow, insipid song spewing all manner of foolishness one after another. Folly is never far from 
any culture, particularly in its entertainments. And it's no surprise that such banalities can be heard in the houses of feasting and of mirth. In other words, at the parties, uh, we read about back in verses 2 and 4. The halftime show, just one of America's largest stages for folly and foolishness in the form of song that actually saps our senses to the realities of death and to reckoning with the shortness of our lives and the importance of living them, as we sometimes say, quorum Deo, before the face of God. I'm sure this is not the narrowest intention of Solomon here, but I wonder if you've ever considered how much foolishness you allow into your head through the ear gates and into your heart, which is where the ears lead as you stream and sing along with with one rebellious, unbelieving, wicked person after another. Songs about cheating on one spouse and about sleeping with uh, one person and then another. In other words, adultery and fornication. About coveting what other people have, their spouse and their stuff. About lying as though it were a glamorous and funny thing. About rebellion against God's law. About autonomy from all authority. Or, or simply about insipid and stupid and banal things. Escapism. Or have you stopped to consider in how much of the empty laughter of fools you indulge your heart and indulge your time by the hour in front of the television, the sitcoms and the talk shows? I think it should cause you some alarm if you can quote Cindy Lauper's lyrics, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Or lines from sitcoms you watched on television from memory. Well, hardly do any two verses of Scripture, let alone a whole paragraph, possess any portion of your heart's memory banks. It means that we've been falling on the wrong side of the better equation from Scripture. To underscore the point of the silliness of stupid songs and snickering, Solomon skillfully employs literary devices known as assonance and onomatopoeia. Assonance, as you know, is the repetition of similar sounds, just as you may have just noticed that I've done with repeated S's. And onomatopoeia is the use of words that sound just like the thing that they're describing. If we read it in Hebrew, the line, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, uh, sounds just like sticks popping in a fire. The S sounds in song, Hebrew shur, shur, and pot, Hebrew sur, and thorns, Hebrew serim, reflect the hissing sounds of the burning fire, while the k and k k sounds remind the original reader and hearer of this text of the crackling of the thorns. One rendering of the text that attempts to capture in English the Hebrew 
emphasis here translates the verse like nettles crackling under kettles. The point is clear enough in Hebrew or in English. The songs of the laughter and the laughter of fools do not help us in our pursuit of the heart of wisdom. And as a matter of fact, there are actually some significant and serious dangers to us, according to Jesus. Woe to you who laugh now, Jesus says, for you shall mourn and weep. What he means is that those who give themselves to laughing their way through life with the empty laughter of fools We'll live to regret it. Or maybe I should say we'll die to regret it. The songs and laughter of fools like those thorns crackling under the kettle are all sound and fury signifying nothing, popping off but only for a short time. Quickly they die out as any of you know who've tried to keep a campfire going by throwing out a bunch of dry sticks. Now they burn up quickly and they're gone. And even while they're burning, they do not really supply the kind of heat that's needed to be of any worth to cook what's in the pot. Just so it is with fools. You hear them all week long, snapping, poppling, popping, crackling for a time in this life to no real effect. And then, quickly, they're no more. Look for them and they're gone. As Jesus said, then they face judgment where they will learn to mourn and to grieve and to weep. But too late. One thinks of the epitaph that John Gay, the English poet and dramatist, wrote for himself. Life's a jest and all things know it. I thought so once. And now I know it. Alas, that he and so many, many others know it to be just the opposite now to their eternal chagrin. That's Jesus' solemn point. Having joked their way through this life, they will mourn and weep for the rest of eternity while you're weeping Now, Christians, your mourning in this life will be turned to joy, unmitigated and unmixed forever. Why? Because to finish the comparison that Solomon makes here, you listen to the wise. Now, you prefer specifically to hear even rebukes of wise people over the laughter and the jokes and the song of fools. You treasure wisdom, don't you? You do, even if the words of wisdom are painful for you to hear, as you know full well, and I do too, they certainly are and can be. Rather than following the top 40 chart, you prefer a bracing, heart-searching sermon over the comedy hour. 
You prefer to have a wise Christian friend rebuke you when needed than to hang around with an hilarious unbeliever. Even though the latter is, of course, a whole lot more fun in the short term and a lot more comfortable to be with to your flesh. I mean, think about it. Who loves to be rebuked? I don't. Do you love to be rebuked? How many of us enjoys having someone come and lo- even lovingly point out our faults? Stop us in our tracks and correct us. Yet, yet the same Solomon who wrote these words also makes the so- same point even more strongly in Proverbs 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. And in visual terms, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows of a fool. Remember his father, King David, he invited wise rebukes, didn't he? Painful as they are. He says, he says let a righteous man strike me. It's a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It's oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. There is wisdom may not always be comfortable to hear. In fact, it may be downright uncomfortable, but it's good for us to listen to the wise. Second, it's good for us to wait wisely. Picking up now at verse 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. If there is something that is right at the center of all of those Proverbs, it certainly is this, isn't it? It is patience. Waiting patiently. And all oh, the challenge that is for us, isn't it? For all of us. Who of us is patient always? Who is immune to the passion of impatience, to the desire, the sinful desire for the shortcut? Judges and rulers who, like all men, fear oppression, fear the loss of money and the consequences. Of it, and they're tempted, therefore, sorely to take a bribe. Even righteous leaders are subject to temptation, driven mad by the possibility of loss. Here's the warning even righteous people, even wise people, are not immune to foolishness and to corruption. Trusting on the Lord to provide requires waiting wisely on the Lord's timing. On the Lord's provision, on the Lord's will, wisdom says, thy will be done. What will help us to wait wisely? What will keep us from rushing into sin, trying to run, as that popular saying goes, trying to run out in front of God? Well, it will help us if we remember to take the long view. Take the long view. It'll help us remember verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. 
It's true. It's, you know, this is always true in the grandest sense for you and for me, isn't it, for Christians, that the end is better than the beginning. That's the grand description of your whole life. The end is better than the beginning. We established that last time, didn't we? The day of death is better than the day of birth. Christians can always, always, always say with full seriousness, the best is yet to be. Whatever is going on in your life, and however difficult the providence that you're facing right now, or continues to be, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the end is better than the beginning. God is going to bring beauty out of your ashes. That's something of a specialty of his. And as a matter of fact, he's promised you as much. Even now, though you cannot tell it, he is staying true to his promise to work all things for your good. All things. All things. Now, can I pretend to explain that to you? Can I show you how that is true? Can I prove it true? Well, of course not, not from what we can see, but I can tell you on the authority of God's own word, it is true as long as we're using the first person, well, the, yes, the first person pronouns, the uh, singular, I will uh, say to you in the third personal pronoun, it is true for you, second person. Oh my, children, don't pay attention to your pastor's grammatical skills today. It is true for you, that's the point, okay? For you and you and you and you and every single one of you who are in the Lord. But you must wait. And you must wait wisely. Or as the poet has it, God's help is always sure. His method seldom guessed. Delay will make our pleasure pure. Surprise will give it zest. His wisdom is sublime, his heart profoundly kind. God never is before his time and never is behind. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. In life, we get to see, we do get to see this sometimes, don't we? God gives us little microcosms from time to time in our lives. You know, small taste, small example. I, I marvel every time I, I stop in or, or pass by the CareNet Pregnancy Center uh, to see and, and to walk into a building worth several hundred thousands of dollars that I got to plunk down the, the check to buy and, and to visit with multiple staff members who labor in our, med, our clinic, our medical clinic to moms and dads and babies in, in crisis. 22 years ago, I wondered how we're going to pay the rent on that little shoebox upstairs apartment we had at the corner of 18th and Frederica. For a while, I carried two cell phones on my belt, Christ Presbyterian Church at CareNet Pregnancy Center. We scratched uh, through our meager budget 
while I met with pastors and businessmen trying to help them catch a vision for, for what might be. And now we operate in this beautiful facility at a budget I never dreamed we would possibly meet, much less exceed impacting lives, not only in Owensboro, but in southern Indiana and western Kentucky. The end certainly is better than the beginning, but oh, the patience. Patience God requires of us as we wait and wait and wait on Him in the day of small things. And oh, the patience that the Lord requires of you, dear ones. For whatever it is, whatever endeavor you are about now, whatever you're looking to Him to accomplish in your life, Life, even your sanctification that is the full unfolding of your salvation and your glorification and his purposes in the whole world. Remember verse 8. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Now wait a minute. What did he just say? Why that contrast, do you think? I mean, I always thought the opposite of patience was what? Yeah, impatience. But no, the opposite of patience is pride. Pride. Why? Because pride waits, refuses to wait on God. It runs out in front of God. It does not trust God, and so it disobeys God. Pride thinks that it knows better than God. That was certainly the case all the way back in the Garden of Eden, wasn't it? Surely they knew better than God. And it's been the same way ever since. You've seen it. I've seen it. There are plenty of examples, living examples, from which we might poll plainly to be seen in people, even professing Christians who will not wait on God but insist on having it their own way and having it their own way now. So they act in foolish ways. Ways that dishonor God. Ways that tarnish their witness and tarnish the witness of Christ's church. And closely related to that is anger, verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. What are we doing when we become angry in our spirits about something? We're saying, God, you're not sufficient. You're not handling this the way that I think you should, the way it must be handled. Your ways are defective. Now I'm taking control. Yeah, that's what anger is, isn't it? Unrighteous anger. It's an attempt to take control, isn't it? Or, or at least to feel like I'm in control. It's unwise. It's foolish. And as you've witnessed, it does lodge in the heart of fools. Have you ever tried reasoning with an angry person? <laughs> it doesn't work. There is no reasoning with someone in whose heart anger has lodged, who is consumed with anger. They are therefore truly fools, aren't they? 
Guard your hearts from anger, dear ones. Guard your hearts from anger. Hardly anything is more certain to drive you far, far away from God's best for you than to give in to anger. And closely related to losing your temper is complaining about the present while airbrushing the past. Oh, if only things were the way they were when we were still living in the good old days. How much better things were then. I wouldn't have to be angry if things were like they used to be. Really? <laughs> Seriously? Verse 10, say not why were the former days better than these, for it's not from wisdom that you ask this. When you hear someone say something like that about the good old days, just picture Kohelet. Picture, picture Solomon, the preacher, standing there, either stifling a chuckle or more likely becoming nauseated. What a foolish thing to say, he would retort. You aren't accurately remembering how things were, are you? You're forgetting that that which is already has been. I mean, have you even read my book? Don't be so silly. Don't be so foolish. Are men sinful now? They were back then too. Are there hardships now? Oh my, there were hardships back then too. Pining for the good old days, so-called, only robs you from right thoughts and from faithful actions now. As Derek Kidner puts it, the clear-eyed Kohaleth is the last person to be impressed by this golden haze around the past. He's already declared that one age is very much like another. Be sensible. We live in the present. We have to. We cannot live in the past. But trying to do that is only crippling you in the present. And besides, let's be honest, the past wasn't any better. Not really. Instead, we have our eyes set on the future because... Why? Because the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And that most certainly is the case because this is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that oh, the wrong seems, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one. Remember all of this converged in the days of Ezra? You remember when we saw some of the Israelites, especially the old-timers, making a great mistake during the rebuilding of the, of the second temple? How they cried, they wept and mourned that, 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 that this temple isn't a shadow of the greatness of Solomon's temple of, 
old. They were backwards looking, weren't they? They were reminiscing over the good old days, impatient. They were short-sighted in the present. Solomon himself would have told them, let the past go. Let bygones be bygones for crying out loud. Look to the future. God is working out his plan. So, therefore, of necessity, the best is yet to be. Think about it. Those living the days of the second temple, they were looking to they were looking for the coming of the greater temple, of the living temple, who is Jesus Christ, who is much, much better. The same is true for us who are waiting in this epoch for Jesus to come again. We are looking forward. We are looking forward, not backward. Our salvation, brothers and sisters, is nearer to us now than the day that you first believed. The end of the thing will be better than its beginning, let me tell you. Let us look forward. Let us be a forward-thinking and looking people with eyes turned to the fullness of God's plan, the glorious consummation of the kingdom to come. Wisdom listens to the wise. And wisdom waits wisely on the Lord who is sovereignly working out all of His purposes for your good and for mine. In fact, that's exactly where Ecclesiastes is going to take us next when we return the Lord willing to pick up at verse 11. Wisdom is good. It is good for a man. It is good for you.